Hello, welcome to Head on History, a podcast for all you history nerds. I'm Ali A. Alomi, your host. Uh, check us out on social media. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, or use the hashtag Head on History to follow along. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say. Um, I've also been checking since Season 2 uh, came out last week. Uh, the reviews on iTunes, and I want to thank all of you that have taken the time to write a review. I will read some of them and give you guys shout-outs uh, on our next podcast, but I appreciate all the kind words uh, and support that you've given me. So if you haven't written a, a review, go and check it out. I, I would, you know, I'll read it out and give you a shout-out. But those of you that have, thank you very much. It's awesome, and, and I'm feeling the love for sure. So this is going to be part two of the history of jihad. Last episode, we talked about jihad in the pre-modern world. And in particular, we talked about the two kind of major historical moments that shaped the concept that is jihad. That is the experience of the early Muslim community as a small, persecuted minority, that was uh, even before jihad was fully realized as a concept. You had a bunch of different kind of terms that was used, and it ref- and generally eventually came uh, to be theologically explained or legally explained as the uh, a sort of defensive strategy that protected the integrity of the Muslim community. This became the heart of jihad for a long time. The second experience was that of the collapse of Muslim territories. First with the Crusades invading Jerusalem. We saw the writings, uh, the poetry, we saw the political movements of Salah din and the writings of various theologians that tried to articulate what happened with the uh, fall of Jerusalem to the Crusaders, and of course the retaking of it in 1187. But also, the secondly, the collapse of Baghdad, which really brought the Abbasid Caliphate to its end in 1258, the, the coming of the Mongols. Both of these shaped jihad, and they created a new kind of ideology. It went from just protecting the integrity of the Muslim community, establishing some form of justice within society, to being fundamentally about terror territorial defense carried out by professional armies. And this becomes the major expression of jihad through most of the early modern era, from about the 13th century all the way up to the 18th century, so about 500 years or so. We see it in the language of the Ottoman Empire. They talk about the Janissaries, the professional military corps protecting Muslim lands. We see it in the language of the Safavids, and it's frontier conflict. And yet again, it is not uniquely seen as something that you do with foreign invaders. The Ottomans use their frontier defense strategy against the Safavids, and the Safavids used it against the Ottomans. The Safavids claimed to be the representative of all Shia communities, and the Ottomans claimed to be the representative of all Sunni communities, and so they fought against one another. Uh, Whereas in reality, Sunni and Shia lived side by side, but the two imperial forces uh, used the language of Sunni and Shia to justify their actions. So that's kind of what we talked about last week. This week, I want to talk to you about how jihad changes in the er, in the modern era. So we're talking about roughly the 18th century until uh, something until the kind of contemporaneous moment 
or the contemporary moment uh, with the rise of sort of jihadist groups. So it's going to be a long history, but hopefully it's a useful and interesting history. I'm going to talk first and foremost about Ibn Abd al-Wahhab. So in the 18th century, the 1700s, emerges this guy known as Muhammad Ibn Abd al-Wahhab. I talked about him in our first season, so go and check out his history. I'm not going to sit here and rehash that history, but what I will say is that jihad becomes one of the core tenets of what uh, Ibn Abdul Wahhab pushes. He comes in this moment where, just like uh, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and, and other theologians were experiencing the collapse of the uh, Abbasid dynasty and Baghdad, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab was experiencing the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire. For him, that was a big deal. On one hand, the Ottoman Empire was failing to defend Muslim lands. Britain was showing up on India. It was exerting its influence in Egypt. And at the same time, the Ottomans were claiming to be the kind of champions of Islam. So for Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, this was an, a clear sign of the sort of backwardness or, or the decadence of the Ottoman Empire. And for him, in order to fight off or restore uh, Muslim power against the growing European imperialism, you had to have jihad. For him, jihad was about returning to a sort of pure and austere vision of Islam. That Islam never existed. Islam was never what Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab really thought it was. It was really an imagined past, but it was an important and, and salient point for him. It was a sort of weaponized nostalgia. Oh, there was this time that we were powerful and glorious and we could fight off our enemies. We have to return to those times by being pure and austere in our faith. Then we too can fight off Europeans. Now, the irony is that despite his sort of kind of anti-colonial, anti-European perspective, most of his jihad is carried out amongst against his fellow Muslims. He spends his time killing Shia. He spends his time killing Sufis. He wages war against the other Arab tribes. He creates this alliance with this Saudi, with this uh, Arab uh, nobility, this Arab chief known as uh, Muhammad ibn Saud becomes the house of Saud uh, that still rules to this day. Uh, you know, for people who, who are following the news, Saudi Arabia is always there. There's always something going on. And so we see this very clearly that, that the ideas or the kind of conflicts in or more contemporary Saudi Arabia starts in this time period in the 18th century with the rise of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And he leads his campaign of jihad. He attacks Mecca and Medina. He reaches all the way up into Basra. It's a massive conflict. He never fully sees his realization of creating the sort of Islamic caliphate in in uh, Arabia, and in reality, he's not overly interested in a caliphate. He signed he, when he created the treaty uh, with the House of Saud. The House of Saud was interested in a monarchy, and he was okay with it. For him, it was just about this this kind of return to a militant and pure kind of Arab tribalistic Islam. In his mind, Islam was tribalistic, and it needed to kind of return to that sense, this kind of conflict against the enemy, this battle against colonialism, even. Even though most of his conflicts were against his fellow Muslims. That becomes the heart of Wahhabi ideology. And then in another twist of irony, it would have been a footnote in history. Uh, by about the, the 1800s, uh, the late 1800s, um, 
the alliance between uh, the, the what we would call the Wahhabis, which is kind of a derogatory term. We, they're more accurately seen as Salafi, but the Salafi movement is broader than Wahhabism. So the, the alliance between the Wahhabis and, and the House of Saud collapses. The Ottoman Empire retaliates. They send Muhammad Ali, who is a pasha from Albania, into Egypt and to gather the troops in Egypt and then march on into Arabia. And they defeat them. They, they kind of force them into the deserts, if you will. And they would have remained there as a sort of footnote in history if it wasn't for the fact that the British get involved. In 1915 or so, they signed this Treaty of Darin, which basically was their attempt at undermining the Ottoman Empire during World War One. They said, look, we can defeat the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire was allied against uh, Britain, against Britain. Britain, the British said, if we can divide and conquer, we can defeat the Ottoman Empire from within. So they approached this kind of small alliance, this kind of really small group, and they said, look, if you fight against the Ottomans for us, we will give you this area, this kind of desert that we don't even want. You can have your own country. And this small, the descendants of the Ibn Abdul Wahhab and Ibn Saud, that alliance, the descendants of those alliance, agreed. They sided with the British. This is the whole Lawrence of Arabia story for any of you that are fans of, of the movie and the book. This is this is where Lawrence of Arabia comes from. They, they sided with the British, fought against the Ottomans, and then when the Ottoman Empire collapsed, they established their own kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That's where the kingdom of Saudi Arabia comes from, from this alliance that was then assisted by British colonialism, if you will. Um, and so Wahhabism becomes this first attempt at really redefining jihad as a return to militancy specifically. Remember, up until this point, you had you had notions of justice, you had notions of, 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 of pr protecting the integrity of the community, of protecting territorial uh, integrity, but this is the first time you have this kind of Puritan idea of jihad, this concept of jihad as as a sort of purification of Islam. But it doesn't become widespread until much later. And indeed, the colonial experience doesn't just influence Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, but it influences a variety of different experiences of, of individuals. The Europeans were arriving in the Middle East and they were exerting influence. By the late 1700s, in the early 1800s, you had Napoleon had already invaded uh, Egypt. Now, it wasn't a particularly successful invasion. By about 1803, he's already gone. So he was there for about like five years or so. But this is a moment, right? After him, the British are exerting influence in Great Britain. Even though you have Muhammad Ali, who's leading this, this kind of reform and modernization pro project in Egypt, you have very clearly British influence. The British were in uh, India, and you have the great game going on, Russia and Great Britain competing for Iran and Afghanistan. And so the European experience or the experience of Europeans exerting power in Muslim countries started to shape jihad itself. We see this uh, particularly with a figure known as Amir Abdul Qadir. He was born in Algeria in 1808. And his family are Sunni, Sufi uh, individuals. They're part of the Qadriya order. He was a fascinating figure. He was a classically trained uh, religious scholar. He was a Sharif, meaning a, a religious leader. Um, there's stories about how he became a Hafiz by 14 or 15 years old. Hafiz just means that he memorized the entirety of the Quran. He was literate. He was versed in the traditional uh, classical Islamic teachings. And he was part of this kind of famous elite religious family. In 1830, 
the French invade Algeria. Algeria is in North Africa, and it's often kind of forgotten. Algeria is actually super, super important. If you understand Libya and you understand Algeria, you start to see the real anti-colonial movement. You start to understand what's going on in France today with things like the Burkini ban, etc. The kind of experience with Algeria shapes the broader Muslim world. In 1830, the, the French had invaded, and the, the father of uh, Abdul Qadir, a guy named Muhayyadin, he calls for a jihad. He defines jihad very specifically as protecting Muslim lands from European invaders. Algeria was really a confederation of tribes, uh, ruled over by a sort of Ottoman governor. They had a lot of resentment towards this Ottoman governor because the Ottoman governor was corrupt, he was taxing the people a lot. And so, and in the same note, he has also failed to protect them from this French invasion. So it was up to the people themselves. Jihad was seen as a sort of popular movement, a popular resistance to the French. And during this this call for jihad, they, the uh, people got together in Algeria and they needed to elect a leader, someone who would lead the campaign. And they elected Abdul Qadr and he becomes Amir al-Mu'manin, that is, the commander of the faithful. This is the classic language of the caliphate. Omar, um, the second caliph in the Rashidun for the Sunnis, uses this language. He is the Amir al-Mu'manin, commander of the faithful. In other words, the commander of the Muslim armies. So to use this language of Amir al-Mu'manin in the 1800s is very significant. It reminds us kind of that of the idea of jihad to restore balance. And so Abdul Qadir becomes Amir. That's what we often refer to him as Amir Abdul Qadir. And when he accepts the title of Amir, he gives this great speech. And I'm going to quote this speech for you. Quote, I have accepted the pledge of allegiance of the people. And this position, despite not having any inclination to it, hoping that in doing so, I could become a mediator that unites the word of Muslims and lifts off their infighting and differences. This is in order to bring about security Stop actions that go against the purity of the law, protect the land from the enemy, and apply ruling and justice upon the strong and the weak. Know that my ultimate goal is the unity of the religion, establishing our rights, and upon God is the reliance in all of this. Now, there's a release, uh, series of, of components of this that I want to, to point out. He says the Pledge of Allegiance of the People. For those of you that listen to season one, this should remind you of what Muhammad himself does. During his attempt in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, where he tries to uh, enter into Mecca, but he's sold, he can't do it, and they come to an agreement that he'll do it next. He gets, he gathers all the Muslim leaders together, and he gives, asks them to give him bayah. That is, an oath of allegiance. This is at the heart of religious leadership in the pre-modern Muslim world. The idea that you are a people and you define yourself vis-a-vis -vis your oath of allegiance. It's a classical Arab concept. But here we have jihad being tied into it. In some ways, this becomes a continuation of the pre-modern notion of jihad, of people banding together, pledging their allegiance to fight as a united front against tyranny. The next part is that he goes, I've accepted this 
despite not having any inclination to it. This again refers in some ways very consciously to the language of Abu Bakr, who goes, I'm not very interested in this, but I will become your khalif so long. If I do right, you follow me. If I do wrong, you correct me. So you see that he's very conscious of this kind of past history of jihad and the past history of Islam, and he's invoking it very deliberately as a sort of repurposing of it, of an attempt to really legitimize his approach. The next is, he goes, I do this in order to bring about security, stop actions that go against the purity of the law, protect the land from the enemy, and apply ruling and justice upon the strong and the weak. In other words, what he's trying to do is return to this kind of older concept of jihad. Not jihad as tribal conflict, but jihad as protecting the integrity of the community, protecting the land of the community, fighting off invaders, and most importantly, establishing justice in society. Muhammad's earliest campaigns in the early period of, of uh, Medina, where he's fighting against the Meccans, was about to was for to bring about justice in the society. It was a society of tyranny, it was a society of conflict, it was a society of division, and he wanted to bring stability, and he wanted to bring peace, and he wanted to bring justice. And so he fought against tyranny. This is a very important, important component of Amir Abdul Qadir's message. He wants to bring unity to the tribes, to protect their lands, and to bring justice. In other words, the European invasion was seen as an act of tyranny. By calling it tyranny, zulm, by calling it tyranny, he is justifying the anti-colonial violence. He ends up going on to becoming one of the most famous generals in Algerian history. He fights against the first um, uh, general, uh, the French general, Di Michel. Di Michel uh, is kind of shocked that Abdul Qadr is so successful. He gets one battle after the other, after the other. And so he ends up signing this treaty, this uh, peace treaty. And he, the French general secedes the province of Oran to Abdul Qadr. Abdul Qadr was successful. He had managed to unite the tribes and he got the, this treaty out of the French. And so the French get kind of annoyed. They're like, why the fuck did we let this general sign this treaty? And so they send a new guy. They recall de Michel and they send in a new general known as Trazel. And Trazel leads a very violent campaign. But the point of his campaign is to pacify the Algerians. And there's this great battle that's kind of a turning point known as the Battle of Makta in 1834, in which the French, having already fought um, Amir Abdul Qadr, were exhausted and they were retreating to the marshes on the river of Makta when suddenly Amir Abdul Qadr rushes out with his troops. He was a master of this sort of guerrilla warfare tactic and attacks uh, the French forces. This forces the, the, the French into a complete rout. It was a massive, massive failure on the French campaign part. And part of the, his success is what he does is he really re brings about this idea that jihad is a cause bigger than you. Up until this time, we had heard the, you know, the social justice kind of component of jihad with Muhammad. We had seen the sort of territorial uh, language that we had seen in the Crusades and the Mongols, this idea that you have to fight in order to save Jerusalem from the Crusaders. But this is really the time where you introduce jihad as a sort of self-sacrifice, right? And he says, die before you die. The resurrection is accomplished for him who dies his voluntary death. That is, sacrifice yourself in this cause. Fight fiercely in your cause. Give yourself over. There's a sort of almost nationalistic component in the way that he's talking. We often hear this language when we talk about uh, modern militaries. 
right? The, the soldiers, soldiers die for your freedoms. They fight for your freedoms. They fight for the bigger cause. This is what we talk, how we talk about them in the United States. Where Amir Abdul Qadir is also using a very similar language. This is a very modernist understanding of warfare, that you give yourself over to such, such, such some type of bigger cause than yourself. The result is that the, the battle exhausts the French. The French military forces are tired of fighting. The Battle of Makta was a massive rout for them. And the French public starts to turn against the campaign in uh, Algeria. And so in 1837, they uh, once more sign a treaty. This is known as the Treaty of Tafna, uh, which basically said, okay, the French can control all the ports, but Two-thirds of the lands would go to Amil Abdul Qadr. He had succeeded. He had managed to regain most of the territory. He had rebuffed the um, military campaign of the French. And he had preserved the unity of the Muslims. And this was very, very important. That The key here was the unity of the Muslims. Here, the, the, this is why the French were so taken aback. These were disparate tribes. These were tribes that didn't get along. But under Amir Abdul Qadr, he was man, he able to bring them all. But the treaty doesn't last. In 1839, Duc de Rolin, one of the royal family of, of the French, he breaks the treaty, completely violates it illegally, if you will. And he appoints the general Bourard uh, to lead a new campaign. And Bourard uses a completely different tactic. He is not no longer fighting a war of pacification in order to make the Algerians agree. Instead, he's fighting a war of annihilation. He wants to wipe everybody out. And he writes quite famously, uh, quote, I will enter your mountains. I will burn your villages and your harvest. I will cut down your trees. For the Algerians, this was quite shocking. Amir Abdul Qadr had earned this reputation of having a just jihad. He refused to burn down villages. He refused to burn down buildings. He would not cut down trees or burn harvests. And in fact, when it came to his troops, he told his troops that they were not allowed to live off the land if it, the harvest belo belonged to someone else, so there was no looting going on. He was so magnanimous that at one point, he had captured several French troops, but he didn't have any food to feed them. The French would just execute those prisoners, but what Amir Abdul Qadr did is he released every single one of them. He's like, I don't have food in order to give you, so I'm going to release you. So he developed this very magnanimous and just and, and righteous persona. And so this was a completely different form of battle. Um, and they, he still continued to fight. He still continued to defend his people. But in 1847, he finally surrendered. The tribes were just shocked. The tribes that were fighting with him were shocked by this new French tactic. And they wanted nothing to do with it. And so he was starting to lose more and more. And they say that the, the kind of history that talks about him surrendering is also quite fascinating. He shows up into the French uh, military camp and he's riding on his great white horse, this great white uh, war horse looking noble, unbound, unbent, and he's very, very strong, and he hands over his war horse as a sign of surrender. Um, and the French promise him, they go, look, you surrender, we're going to allow you to go into the east, to Alexandria or Cairo, or maybe Damascus or somewhere like that. And so he goes, okay, he hands over his war horse in this kind of great theatrical moment, but yet again, just like they broke the Treaty of Tafna, they once more break 
this promise as well, and he was taken captive. It is reputed that he said, God has undone what my hand has done. In other words, he by his own merit, he had by his hand had managed to unite the tribes, but circumstance was against him. And in many ways, most historians would probably agree with this analysis, not necessarily that God had undone his work, but that he was mostly successful, that his campaign was pretty well fought, and it was only turned against him much later on when things just started to go wrong. Now, he was in jail for a long period of time, but the French people were absolutely taken by his personality. His magnanimity in battle, his generosity in battle, the fact that he freed French soldiers, that he didn't kill prisoners, that he didn't torture, that he didn't burn down, etc., led a whole public relations campaign. I kid you not, this is a real public relations campaign in order to free Amir Abdul Qadir, this guy who had fought against the French armies, the French people fell in love with him. So he went from the enemy of the French to kind of this friend of the French. And one of the most famous kind of people was Victor Hugo. For those of you who are literary fans, he's the author of The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables. If you haven't read either of those things, you are a troglodyte and an uncouth bastard that I want nothing to do with. Um, but Victor Hugo is one of those people that supports Amir Abdul Qadir. And eventually Napoleon releases him. And he ends up in Damascus. He lives a very simple life in Damascus. He was he lived a very simple life when he was a commander. He lived very austere, lived in a, in a tent. Goes to Damascus, and he continues to have this fantastic reputation. In 1860, there was a conflict between the Druze, which is a, a religious sect within uh, Syria and Lebanon and in in that region, uh, the Druze and the Maronite Christians. And this led to a sectarian fighting, infighting between these two religious communities. And what he did in 1860s actually went outside, had sent his sons to collect the Maronite Christians who were a vulnerable population, and he hid them in his own house. Um, he hid them in his own house, and, the, and again, once more, the French were amazed by his actions. He ended up dying. But this, this image of Amir Abdul Qadir and the way he used jihad becomes a very important component in the history of jihad. Jihad is redefined as anti-colonial violence, as resistance. Um, we see this kind of language in the global south in particular, this language of resisting colonialism, fighting back against it. The next figure I want to talk about is Alavrani. So th even though this is kind of a history of movements, because jihad is an ideology, you have to talk about the people who think about it and articulate it. So one of these ideologues, Ali Alavrani, is is super important to understanding not just the history of jihad, but the history of political Islam. And what I mean by political Islam is the attempt to use Islam as a religion uh, as the basis for political formation, whether it is a government, a state, a political party, etc. Understanding Alavrani will help you understand. Everything from the Muslim Brotherhood to um, the rise of uh, political parties in Tunisia like the Enahad to uh, even groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, Daesh. That's not to say Al-Afghani is directly linked to them, but his ideology is really adopted by them. And there's something quite fascinating. So Al-Afghani, uh, for fair, you know, completely open transparency, Al-Afghani is one of my favorite figures in history. He's just so weird and fascinating, so much so that I actually did my master's thesis on it, uh, submitted it, and it was accepted And back in the day, and people liked it. It was considered a good contribution to uh, the history of Al-Afghani, though the master's thesis itself was a total... 
<laughs> mess. That's the reality of these theses. Um, but Al-Afghani is interesting. So he's born in 1838-ish. We're not quite sure about it. In a place called Asadabad. So he's probably likely, even though his name is Al-Afghani, that it means the guy from Afghanistan or the Afghan, um, he's more than likely born in Iran. Whatever the case, he is very clearly of the Persian world, whether Afghan or Iranian. But he does spend a great deal of time in Afghanistan. He's actually the advisor to Dost Mahmud Khan, uh, the emir and king of Afghanistan. Um, and in particular, he's interested in getting Afghanistan to really resist British India, uh, in uh, British influence. He ends up in India at some point. He has some relations with the Khalifat movement, who who owe their allegiance to the Ottoman Empire, um, and he sees the he really experiences British rule in India, and that shapes his political ideology. That shapes his mindset. He ends up in Cairo where he meets his student, Muhammad Abdu. Muhammad Abdu is actually the person who ends up writing most of Al-Afghani stuff. And when we talk about Al-Afghani, it's a kind of complicated. We don't know where Al-Afghani ends and Muhammad Abdu starts. A lot of the things that are attributed to Al-Afghani may very well have been Muhammad Abdu. And many of the things that are attributed to Muhammad Abdu may very well have been Al-Afghani. These two people are related to one another very closely. And that's because Al-Afghani doesn't actually write any of his stuff down. Muhammad Abdu does it. Um, he's also involved in Iran for a while. In 1896, he was kind of with Nasser Shah, but he ends up breaking with him. And in 1896, he actually instigates a, an insurrection against Nasser Shah that leads to Nasser Shah's um, uh, assassination. So Al-Afghani is a weird figure. We don't quite know what he is. He's a, he's a trickster. At one point, he even says, he goes, the Sunnis think me a Shia, the Shia think me a Sunni, the Muslims think me a materialist, that is a sort of atheist, the materialists think me a, a, a Muslim, the British think me a Russian, and the Russians think me a British. So the, he's, he didn't fit. He kind of lived in the cracks of society. But for him, and I think this quote really articulates what he's trying to get at he writes this quote out of fear of the europeans and westerners they that is the muslims cannot sleep at night and have no peace in the daytime the foreigners influence has affected even their blood vessels to the extent that they shudder with fear when they hear the words of russian and england what an immense tragedy what a great catastrophe has fallen on us. He sees, like these other figures, the influence of Europe as a catastrophic influence in the Middle East. He sees in particular the sort of advancements in Europe technological in particular, as the key to restoring Islam to the kind of glory of its past. But unlike Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab, who looked to the first generation of Muslims as that perfect moment in history that you need to recapture, Al-Afghani instead saw the Abbasid, the golden age of Islam, the rise of philosophical Islam, as the era by which to return to. And unlike Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, he didn't want to return to that time period, but rather reinvigorate the spirit that already existed within Islam. He said, look, we had this beautiful golden age. We can rekindle an awakening within Islam. We just need to band together. For Al-Afghani, the key here was not that jihad was to be fought as, as, a, as a war, but rather it was a proactive defense. That Muslims had to band together in a sort of Muslim league. Uh, this is what we call pan-Islamism, or perhaps Islamic nationalism. This idea that he wasn't interested in how the government looked like, per se. He wasn't prescriptive. He was actually very descriptive. 
It didn't matter whether you have one country or eight countries, if you had a khalif or a sultan or a mir. He just wanted them all to band together. All of these people, all of these joined together in the sort of Islamic nationalism. That is, your Muslim identity supersedes everything else. Your linguistic identity, even sectarian differences. He wasn't interested in the Sunni or Shia. No, no, you were all Muslim. And by becoming this kind of fraternity of Muslims, you could then create a buffer zone against European imperialism. You could fight it back. His key component, he doesn't articulate jihad all the time, even though it is part of the backdrop of what he's talking about as actual physical resistance to the Europeans. But for him, it was about proactively changing society, reforming the social structure of the Muslim world, vis-a-vis -vis education. Education was the key. He wanted to modernize the education methods, reintroduce rationalist uh, debates, reintroduce a, a sort of a, a standardized form of education, translation of textbooks. And his inspiration was at the same same time European, what he saw going on in Britain and in France, as well as the Islamic world itself. He looked to the translation projects of the Abbasid, the Bayt al-Hikmah under Harun al-Rashid, the rise of the Mutazili and the Ashari during Al-Amin and Ma'mun's time. And he looked at them as inspiration that Islam had advanced beyond all civilizations, but now it had fallen a little bit behind. It can catch up again if it could just reinvigorate that spirit and join together as a unified front against European imperialism. In many ways, this, this type of idea of history, this notion of civilizations rising and falling and declining, this comes from Ibn Khaldun. Ibn Khaldun writes about this in his Muqaddimiyah, this this, uh, this sort of science attempt to create a scientific history that explains why civilizations come, civilizations go. Um, we've talked about Ibn Khaldun. I'll be doing more about the ideology of Ibn Khaldun later, but it becomes very key to the way Al-Afghani understands it. He sees jihad as sort of action taken by a unified Muslim front. That's the key here, right? That the Muslims are united as a front against the Europeans. His ideas are eventually picked up and Parts of it are taken, parts of it are rejected, and it becomes the root of Islamism, this idea that Muslims must put Muslim identity above all else and unite in order to defend Muslim lands. It's what leads to uh, the Muslim groups like the Islamist groups like Tahir, it leads to uh, groups like Anahad, it leads to the Muslim Brotherhood, it leads to all of it. All of it comes from Al-Afghani. But Al-Afghani isn't an Islamist, per se, in the way we think, because he's using a sort of cultural definition of religion. You are all Muslim. It doesn't matter. The theological components don't matter. What matters is that you are all united. Now, I'm going to take a break from uh, Al-Afghani before I move on to kind of the other uh, moments. So we're going to do a quick rapid-fire round. So I've actually compiled these with consultation with my sound editor, my tech guy today, um, and, and these are the questions we came up with. So first, is any of this related to the kind of language of jihad that Al-Qaeda and Daesh use? Two, do you think Trump knows who Al-Afghani is? And three, is Afghanistan named of after al-Afghani. So the first question, is any of this related to the jihad of al-Qaeda and Daesh? Absolutely. This is part of the kind of intellectual trajectory that jihad goes through. 
these stages. It starts off about protection of the integrity of the community, leads to territorial defense, eventually becomes anti-colonial resistance, is then reinterpreted not just as a sort of defending the Muslim community, but literally part of the Muslim state. This idea that you would create a Muslim state, and that's what Al-Afghani is talking about, and jihad would be the actions of protection. It eventually takes on very revolutionary terms, and that's Al-Qaeda and, and Daesh use uh, that language and use that history in order to justify their actions. Now, does that mean that terrorism equals jihad? The answer to that is no. Um, and, and that's in that sense, orthodox Islam, that is that the majority of Muslims don't agree with the actions of Al-Qaeda or um, Daesh, that what they say, that's not jihad. Jihad ha takes on this, anti this sort of anti-colonial sentiment, this resistance sentiment, and certainly even in Islamist groups takes on the language of state violence against uh, European imperialism. But in none of these cases does it ever mean complete and total warfare of annihilation, bombing buildings and airplanes. That's never a component. But what you can see, remember, jihad has very clear and strict rules. Despite the fact that every generation and every era kind of redefines jihad within its own context, right? So the, for the people of uh, living in the 13th, in the 10th century, 11th century, and the 12th century, who are experiencing the destruction of Baghdad and, and, and Jerusalem, they're defining uh, jihad within their context, right? The people who are living in the British in the imperial component or the time period of European colonialism are defining jihad within relation to European colonialism. But something of the core ideology remains, and that is the, the kind of guiding principles of war, that you are not to use jihad to kill innocent people, you are not to use jihad to fight indiscriminately against people, that it is only used as a restricted measure, that there's regulations, meaning that you can only go so far as there is conflict. If the person decides to go to create peace with you, you must create peace. You can't burn down trees, you can't kill the elderly, you can't kill children. So there's a whole set of regulations that, despite all of the kind of contextualization, remains at the heart of jihad. And so that's why most, the majority of religious scholars, even if they are Islamist or they're inclined to creating this sort of pan-Islamic state, still disagree with the methods of Al-Qaeda and Daesh. But it's also important, it's, it's also inaccurate to say that Al-Qaeda and Daesh's idea of jihad has nothing to do with the historical concept of jihad. What they do is they draw upon some of these ideas. So they're very clearly, Daesh is very interested in creating a sort of uh, a state in which Islam is the identifier, in which Muslim is the identity that you use, right? We see this in, in their territories, that you are a citizen of Daesh by virtue of being Muslim. They use the sort of anti-colonial language of Al-Afghani and Al-Maududi, which we'll talk about in a minute as you must fight off these invaders because they're foreign influence. They talk about it in the sense of a vanguard of Muslims protecting Muslim lands. They even use the language of the Crusades. They refer to them as Crusaders. They refer to them as Al-Faraj, that is the French, even though they're American and whatnot. So there is a complicated history there. The easy answer is that, that it's related, but it's not the exact same definition, that the vast majority of people disagree with, with Al-Qaeda and Daesh's definition because they break with the rules 
and regulations of jihad, but that Al-Qaeda and Daesh still draw from some of these ideas, a warped version of these ideas, but it's still these ideas. Do I think that Trump knows Al-Afghani? I know for a fact that that shaved orangutan does not know who Al-Afghani is. Uh, and the third question, is Afghanistan named after Al-Afghani? No, uh, Al-Afghani is named after Afghanistan, or in this case, uh, the Afghan people. Um, so those are the questions. Let's, uh, let's end our rapid fire round. Hopefully that gave your brain a break from all this information that I'm dumping into your minds, beating into your heads with a textbook, uh, and we will continue on with our story. So the next figure that's really important to understand is Al-Maldudi. This guy named Abula Al-Maldudi. He lives in India. He was born in 1903. He is, he takes a lot of the ideas of Al-Afghani takes this idea of a kind of Islamic polity, of a political force of Islam that is protected, that needs, that is proactive in its defense, and he reinterprets it. In many ways, he actually draws upon the language of Marxism, and this is a little unknown element of Islamic history that people don't know. He fuses it with Marx's idea of a sort of revolutionary war. In, in Karl Marx, for those of you who don't know who he is, Karl Marx writes this idea of a kind of universal class warfare. That there is a there is a international figure that is the proletariat. That wherever whatever country you're in, wherever you are, there is a proletariat. And all of those proletariats are united into a single cause of fighting against the bourgeoisie. Abul al Maududi uses that same language, but repurposes it for Islam. He writes, for example, quote, In reality, Islam is a revolutionary ideology and program which seeks to alter the social order of the whole world and rebuild it in conformity with its own tenets and ideals. Muslim is the title of that international revolutionary party organized by Islam to carry into effect its revolutionary program. And jihad refers to that revolutionary struggle and utmost exertion which, which the Islamic party brings into play to achieve its objective. Quote. Now that's interesting, right? He calls Muslims international revolutionary party. That's very Marxist language. It's Maoist language. So what he sees is jihad is not just a religious act. It's not just protecting the integrity of the Muslim community. It is an act of revolution, of international revolution, that Muslims are the vanguard, the protectors of kind of Islam. And they use jihad to fundamentally transform society as a whole, to change the social order of the world, and that is to overturn the global order. The global order by the time of al-Maududi is very clear. You have Europe as the center, and you have the Muslim lands like India and Egypt as the periphery, places in which Europeans can come in and extract the wealth and resources and whatnot and take it back to enrich themselves. That order needed to be overturned. This kind of anti-colonial Marxist idea becomes huge in the global south, and it's not unique to the Muslim world. We see in Latin America in particular the idea of the global south uh, banning together and fighting against the kind of global order. It's part of the socialist movements in Latin America, but we see it here in the language of Islam. So jihad becomes this kind of revolutionary concept. This becomes huge for red Shiism in particular, Ali Shariati's ideas in Iran, um, as, a, as a sort of rejection of the autocratic and authoritarian regime of the Shah, Ali Shariati comes up with this idea of red Shiism, that is revolutionary Shiism. Now, Shiism has already always had a component of revolution, right? Especially 
post-Battle of Karbala. The Battle of Karbala had such a horrible effect on the Muslim world because of the tragedy that was the slaughtering of the Prophet's family. That there was always within Shiism, even when it became quietest during the, uh, the Abbasid Caliphate, a notion of revolution, a notion that at some point... Shias would reunite together and really create a just society, a society that would restore the principles of the Prophet's teachings, right? That they would follow the Imams, that you would recreate this kind of good society. And Ali Shariyati builds on that older idea, but he throws in that kind of the language of al-Maududi. The language of jihad as a sort of revolutionary act. And we see that in the 1979 Islamic Revolution. It's a literal overthrow of the old monarchy, the old social order, and a recreation of Iran in a new social order. One that is based, weirdly enough, on kind of Plato's um, uh, ideals, his, his, his concept of society, Plato's republic his ideas in Plato's Republic with a philosopher king at the top. That would be the Valiate Faqi, right? The, the, the Ayatollah at the top. Um, but also elements of Shiism. So Shiism blended with Marxism, blended in with uh, Plato's Republic is what gives birth to Iran. So we see how the ideology of Maududi and then Ali Shariati fused together and have a real consequence in, in Middle Eastern history. It leads to literal revolutions. But the language of a sort of vanguard of Muslim warriors protecting the kind of political party of Islam which is aimed at transforming the world becomes the language that is really picked up by later groups like Daesh and Al-Qaeda. They see, this is why Al-Qaeda you know, hijacks airplanes and bombs buildings. They call that an act of jihad, not because it fits within the classical definition of jihad, but because they're reinterpreting that global order. They're going, this global order is the United States. The United States is in Saudi Arabia, at, right near Mecca, at the heart of Muslim lands. You have the Palestinians who are being oppressed. You have this global order that needs to be overturned. And the only way that we can overturn it is through an act of international revolution. We would strike at the enemy wherever they are, and the revolution would overturn things. And in some regards, you could argue that Al-Qaeda was somewhat successful. It did overturn the social order of the Arab and Muslim world. 9-11 and the invasion of, Iraq, of Afghanistan and then subsequently the invasion of Iraq eventually leads to the Arab Spring. This radical transformation, the shifting of allegiances that happens in the Muslim world. So they don't end up succeeding in achieving their goals, but there is this social upheaval that is a result of their actions. Now, they define revolution in very different ways than al-Maududi does, right? Very different way than Ali Shariati writes. Ali Shariati is about creating a just society. But for groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh, they're fixated on just the violence, on just the act of revolution. They don't clearly articulate how society is meant to look, etc. Daesh goes a step further than Al-Qaeda. But before we go to Daesh and Al-Qaeda, we should finish up with our last figure, and that's Sayyid Qutb. Sayyid Qutb is part of the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is founded much earlier in the 20th century by Hassan al-Banam. But it's a very different than what people think about. The Muslim Brotherhood has turned into this weird, like, oh, they've infiltrated the United States and they're coming together. The Muslim Brotherhood is coming. The Muslim Brotherhood is coming. That's not actually how they are. They're about changing social order. They take the ideas of, of uh, Maududi, 
and they take the ideas of Hassan al-Banna and they go, okay, but they fuse it with Al-Afghani's idea. They go, we're not going to carry out acts of jihad. What we're going to do is we're going to change the social order of the world by creating a civil society. That is, we're going to create education reform, that we're going to do charities, etc. So that we can teach and train the new generation of Muslims. Socially conscious Muslims who are involved in politics and will change the politics of the Muslim world. So it's about a long-term change. So they're returning in many ways to Al-Afghani's agenda, but they're bringing in some ideas from Maududi and uh, that's that's the Muslim Brotherhood. Ikhwan. Said Qutb then takes this a step further. Said Qutb is first comes to the United States. He's trained. He's Western educated, and he's kind of weird. Said Qutb's a fascinating guy. He's really, if I had to describe him, he's a dude who's really bitter that white women wouldn't sleep with him. I kid you not. This is a man who who came to America and he was like shocked. On some regards, he like loved America. He thought America was cool. In other regards, he hated America, and it was mostly because no one would date him. <laughs> He was a little. He was a small, little, weird dude with a mustache, and no one wanted to date him, and that made him really resentful and bitter. And so he was constantly talking about the kind of the the decadence of American society. And when he comes back to Egypt, he brings a lot of those ideas with him. So he's these are all very. He's a very clear modernist. That is, he's trained in kind of Western ideology, but he sutures it and fuses it in the same way that Al Maududi does with Marxism. Marxism is a European philosophy that he sutures on and injects into Islam. So too does Said Qutb do the same thing. And he also argues for this kind of internationalist revolution. He's eventually suppressed. He's put, jailed. He writes his book, Milestones, actually while he's in jail. Um, Nasser, Nasser jails him. And that really shapes his experience. For him, he goes, there's no way that we can peacefully change society in the same way that Hassan al-Banna said. We need to violently change society. And we can only overturn that order by carrying out acts of violence. Said Qutb doesn't openly call for terrorism, but he is calling for some form of warfare. Said Qutb's disciples are suppressed in Egypt, and they actually escape, and they end up in Saudi Arabia, where Wahhabism was the ideology. Remember, Wahhabism had that tribal militancy. So you have the tribal militancy of Wahhabism fuses together with the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Muslim Brotherhood under Said Qutb specifically, because the Muslim Brotherhood has a variety of different branches. They end up becoming the educators and teachers in the madrasas of Saudi Arabia. And you now have the birth of modern terrorism, right? These are people who look to see terrorism in, in the world. They look to European and Western ideas. And this is very important. Terrorism is not a uniquely Islamic concept. It actually starts by the secularists. The very first terrorist groups are nationalists, people who are secular nationalists. The most successful campaign being carried out by groups like Irgun and Lehi in Palestine, in Br British Mandate Palestine. These Jewish groups uh, led these terrorist campaigns against the British um, and, and they end up being successful. They forced the British out. Then there's the Fada'in in Iran. The Fada'in are a group of people who saw that campaign. They pick up that tactics and they go, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to carry out these kind of terrorist bombings and whatnot against a much bigger and more powerful group. And the PLO, right, the, era, the Palestinian PLO does the same thing. They pick up those tactics. The PLO are secularists. People forget that, right? But the, the fusion of Wahhabi ideology and uh, Qutbism or the ideas of Said Qutb, and then the borrowing of tactics from European and secularist and nationalist groups is what produces 
Al-Qaeda and Daesh. They take that ideology of going, there is a certain global order that exists in the world, and we need to overturn that global order, and we can only do so vis-a-vis -vis revolution, vis-a-vis -vis this kind of international Muslim party that must unite and fight against it. Wherever you are, O Muslims of the world, whether you were born and raised in America or born and raised in France, you are part of this revolutionary party. You are all part of this, and we must change the societies that we live in, and we can only do so violently. Well, what type of violence do we use? Is it the noble fighting, the sort of the fighting that we see in the quote-unquote noble? All fighting is horrible. The quote-unquote noble fighting of... Um, Amir Abdul Qadr, in which you fight a conventional war, but you have rules and restrictions, or is it the uh, jihad that we see uh, in, in India, the sort of revolutionary jihad, or is it the acts of terrorism that are carried out by the nationalists? Those secularists, they seem to know what they're doing, and so you borrow those tactics. You borrow those tactics, you fuse it onto the ideology of international revolution, and that's where you end up with groups like Al-Qaeda and Daesh. Hopefully this gives you an understanding of this long history, of it, and this long trajectory of how jihad is transformed over the years. And it's important to recognize that Al-Qaeda, Daesh, and even Qutbism are not mainstream Islamic ideas. These are revolutionary radical ideas that, take, that are happening in the fringe. They then are picked up by fringe groups. The overwhelming majority of Muslims still view Islam, with, view jihad within the classical Islamic terms. Now, some of them have may, may have been influenced by Amir Abdul Qadr or Al-Afghani and now use jihad as a language of resistance against colonialism, resistance against imperialism, but there's still that component within Islam that sees jihad as regulated and controlled, as self-defense, not as a proactive war, that you fight against your colonizer, you fight against the imperialist, that you're allowed to protect Muslim lands and the Muslim and protect the integrity of the Muslim community, but you are only able you only do so with the intent of justice and righteousness. That you must not burn down trees, not kill the innocent, do not kill uh, the orphan, the widow, and the old person, or the child. That you are not to raise the land, that you are not meant to do um, loot, that you are not to attack monks or Christians or Jews. That you only do this so far as to end oppression. How is that oppression defined? In the early Muslim era, that oppression is defined against fighting against the tyranny of the Meccans. It's then redefined in the uh, era of the Crusaders and the Mongols as fighting against the oppression of invaders who are going to steal your land. It's then reinterpreted in the colonial era as oppression is colonialism. Colonialism is oppression, so you can fight against it. And then reinterpreted as fighting against uh, imperialism, that you are to protect against your lands and your people being taken over. And only a fringe group of people, the so-called jihadists, who then reinterpret jihad as all-out warfare of annihilation to fundamentally change society as a whole. The global order must be overturned. The global order of inequality must be overturned. Hopefully this gives you an understanding of jihad. That is the long history, if you will. That's why we did it over two episodes. And also helps you to see the nuance, the differentiation, that when Al-Qaeda calls for jihad, that is not what mainstream Muslims think about jihad. That there is this other history of how it's been politicized and changed, and how it is shaped by historical circumstance. Thank you for listening. I'm going to end with a couple book recommendations. The first book is uh, by a historian uh, of the Islamic world, Michael Bonner, and it's called Jihad 
in Islamic history, doctrines and practices. It's by Princeton University Press. Michael Bonner is a professor of actual medieval history. So what he does is he actually looks at uh, violence in the Muslim world and he looks at the early uh, sources. And he's he does some brilliant work tracing the kind of legal understanding of violence in the Muslim world. Um, the next book, is, the next two books are actually by the same guy, Olivier Roy. Olivier Roy is one of the most famous uh, sociologists and historians of France. He actually works on the Persian world in particular. His first book that I highly recommend everyone is Islam and Resistance in Afghanistan. So I didn't get a chance to talk about Afghanistan a lot in this episode because I wanted to talk about the ideology here. But this is a really important book because the kind of the methods that I was talking about, the fusion of Sayyid Qatab with Wahhabism um, and this kind of idea of international resistance finds its first theater in the Afghan-Soviet war. So when the Soviets invade Afghanistan, there is this time that Saudi Arabia and these other countries see it as an opportunity to test out their theories, the theories of using of, of using international resistance, right? A coalition of people joining together to fight against an invasion. And that's what happens with the Mujahideen. You have, you have Arabs showing up, you have Yemenis showing up, people from Algeria showing up, people from Chechnya showing up, and they all arrive in Afghanistan and they carry out this war of resistance. Now, it's interesting that even in this particular moment, terrorism is not a common tactic. There is no suicide bombings that are carried out during this so-called jihad, and it is a jihad. And it isn't until much later with the establishment of al-Qaeda in the 90s and then afterwards that you grow where they go, we're going to, that may have worked back then, but we need to completely overturn the global order. But this book is a good example of how jihad is first, those ideas of jihad, that marginal kind of off- not mainstream uh, jihad that really gets born in Saudi Arabia as a mix of Wahhabism and Qutbism is practiced in Afghanistan. Islam and Resistance in Afghanistan, a really, really good book, highly recommend it. And his next book, um, you can also check out The Failures of Political Islam. That's good, but I actually like his more recent book, Oghlifi uh, Roy's Jihad and Death, The Global Appeal of Islamic State. So he's much more consciously talking about Daesh in this particular book and Al-Qaeda. I would recommend these three books. Hopefully you have enjoyed the podcast. Uh, let me know what your thoughts are. If you want to hear more about this, if there's certain topics that you'd like to hear, you can hit me up in social media or on uh, using the hashtag head on history. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Uh-huh.